Open God's holy word to Jeremiah chapter 39. Jeremiah chapter 39, verses 1 through 18. In the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and besieged it. In the eleventh year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month, a breach was made in the city. Then all the officials of the king of Babylon came and sat in the middle gate. Nergal Sarezer of Samgar, Nebuchadnezzar the Rabsaris, Nergal Sarezer the Rabmag, with the rest of the officers of the king of Babylon. When Zedekiah king of Judah and all the soldiers saw them, they fled going out of the city at night by way of the king's garden through the gate between the two walls. And they went toward the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. And when they had taken him, they brought him up to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, at Riblah, in the land of Hamath, and he passed sentence on him. The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah at Riblah before his eyes, and the king of Babylon slaughtered all the nobles of Judah. He put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took, to take him to Babylon. The Chaldeans burned the king's house and the house of the people and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. Then Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile to Babylon the rest of the people who were left in the city, those who had deserted to him and the people who remained. Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, left in the land of Judah some of the poor people who owned nothing and gave them vineyards and fields at the same time. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, gave command concerning Jeremiah through Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, saying, Take him, look after him well, do him no harm, but deal with him as he tells you. So Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, Nebuchadnezzar, the Rabsaris, Nergal Sarezer, the Rabmag, and the chief officers of the king of Babylon sent and took Jeremiah from the court of the guard. They entrusted him to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, that he should take him home, so he lived among the people. The word of Yahweh came to Jeremiah while he was shut up in the court of the guard, Go and say to Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will fulfill my words against this city for harm and not for good, and they shall be accomplished before you on that day. But I will deliver you on that day, declares Yahweh, and you shall not be given into the hand of the men of whom you are afraid. For I will surely save you, and you shall not fall by the sword, but you shall have your life as a prize of war, because you have put your trust in me, declares Yahweh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, Every one of us deserves nothing but your undiluted wrath and judgment. And so for your saints, endear our hearts more properly, more righteously to you. And understanding what we've been saved from. 
Father, awaken in sinners a heart that understands their desperate state outside of Christ and grant them faith. The faith we see in Ebed-Melech in this text that they might be delivered from your destruction. In Christ's name, Amen. The dominant message that Jeremiah has now preached for over 40 years now comes to pass. That boiling pot that he spoke of early in his ministry that was precariously tipped away from the north, ready to spill out on God's people, has now tipped over, spilling onto Jerusalem. Like a glacier, God's judgment may be slow in coming, but it is certain and it will leave the landscape completely changed when it passes. The city is destroyed, the king is damned, the people are deported, and the prophet is delivered. Yahweh, as promised, watched over His word to perform it and is now plucked up, broken down, destroyed, overthrown. The pot tipped, we see, in the ninth year of King Zedekiah, whenever the siege began. Though there was this temporary reprieve as they directed their attention, Babylon directed her attention to Egypt to deal with her, but that was like the sloshing of the water to the back of the pot, only for it now to rush forward with even greater force. The walls are soon breached. They dissolve and crumble as God's boiling wrath spills continuously against His obstinate and unrepentant people. The walls are breached and the officials of Babylon march into the city and they sit down at the middle gate, verse 2. And this is far more significant than you coming home and sitting in the recliner after a long day of work to enjoy a book or a film. This is more significant than you finish mowing the lawn and you take your favorite seat on the patio. They they aren't resting. They're taking a seat the way a judge would take a seat. They're taking a seat the way a king would assume his throne. In chapter 26, Jeremiah gave a message that so infuriated the false prophets and the priest that they lay hold of him saying, you shall surely die. And it seems that they're getting ready to act on it, but they're intercepted by the officials and we're told that they came up from the king's house to the house of Yahweh and took their seat. In the entry of the new gate, they took their seat. They have a seat there, and that seat is in the new gate and uh, at the house of Yahweh. And so they take it to assume a position, uh, to assume the authority of judge. The gates were the place of rule and judgment, transactions. In explaining the meaning of that boiling pot that was tipped away from the north, ready to spill upon them. God 
told Jeremiah, chapter 1, verse 15, I am calling all the tribes of the kingdoms of the north, declares Yahweh, and they shall come, and everyone shall set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem against all its walls and all around and against the cities of Judah. So the greater woes you see are beginning with them sitting, not ending. The city's fallen. The greater doom is ready to be pronounced as these men are setting up their thrones at the gates against its walls and against all the cities of Judah. Mind you, at this point, only the walls are breached, not burned, as we'll later see. So this sitting is for the greater judgment now to transact. The foreignness of those who sit at the gate can be seen in their alien-sounding names. If you've grown up in the Bible, as it were, then whenever you're reading through genealogies or portions of Scripture, you come across the occasional Hebrew name that strikes you as odd. But there's a kind of native oddness to it. Like, it fits, it belongs. But these, these names are not simply odd or foreign. They are pagan. And, and you can sense it. Nergal Sarezer means, May Nergal protect the king. Nergal being the secondary god of the, the uh, Akkadian pantheon. He was the god of war, of scorched earth, pestilence, hunger, destruction. He was also king of the underworld. So think of him something of like a, a mash between all the worst things of Ares and, uh, and Hades, or Pluto and Mars, god of war and god of death in the underworld. Nebo, or Nebu, is the chief god of their pantheon. And his father was displaced by him, the same way that you see Zeus displacing Kronos. You see the same thing with Nebu displacing Marduk, the creator in, their, in the Babylonian uh, mythology. So unlike the Trinitarian god of the scriptures, who is unified in one in which we see a father loving the son and the son loving the father. You see these pagan myths have a son slaying, killing, upsetting, deposing the father. There's no unity, there's not even love, there's enmity. And Nebuchadnezzar bears his name, Nebu, Nebu, that all these N-E-B-U names bear that name. And so, whereas you see so many Hebrew names ending with I-A-H, Yah, Yahweh, their names so often begin, not with their God, but with the name of their gods. Multiple gods. No, no single God. And so can you see why then, with, with all the significance that's bound in that, whenever Zedekiah sees these men, these are their names, this is who they are, he sees these men sitting at the gates. You see why he would flee? You see why the soldiers are, are fleeing as well? And while his running is understandable from a human perspective, from, from the perspective of unbelief, it makes absolutely no sense in light of what God has said. 
Zedekiah is continuing to act from this, this human wisdom and cunning. He has been previously politically pragmatic. But, but now the situation's changed. So he is sensibly a survivalist. He, he just, whatever the law is, he tries to play it as best he thinks he can for his own skin. And the problem is, God said, if you'll surrender, you'll live. If you try to run, you will not escape. Jeremiah 34.3 You shall not escape from his hand, but you shall surely be captured and delivered into his hand. You shall see the king of Babylon eye to eye and speak with him face to face, and you shall go to Babylon. Previous chapter, 38 verse 18. You shall not escape from their hand. The king is like that companion in that adventure thriller kind of movie that whenever you encounter the large predatory beast, frequently a dinosaur, the collected expert says, don't run. And what does the chap inevitably do? He runs. Zedekiah is not simply told by Jeremiah, but through Jeremiah, he is told by the lion of the king, the, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's told by the lion himself, don't run. If you don't run, you'll live. And if you run, though I promise you this much, my teeth will not slay you. My claws will severely maim you. And despite this, he runs. Despite Babylon coming, as Yahweh had said. Despite Babylon returning, as Yahweh had said. Despite the walls being breached, as Yahweh had said. Despite the officials setting up their throne at the gates, as Yahweh had said. Still, he runs. God has promised A, B, C, and D. A, B, and C have come to pass. And Jeremiah thinks he can outrun D. He thinks he can outrun the lion. Sinner, do you see the folly of living by human cunning? Of trying to sin swiftly rather than simple obedience and faith to the revealed will of God in His Word? Do you see the folly of trying to sin smartly. You cannot sin smartly, but sin always smarts. Don't run. There is no escape. God is omnipresent and He is omnipotent. He's everywhere and He's everywhere with all power. Anywhere you go, there He is, and there He is in all of His glory and power. And you can't, neither can you hope to escape Him by stealth or craftiness. He is also uh, omniscient. He knows everything. Earthly lions sleep for some 20 hours a day. The Lion of Heaven never sleeps. He never even grows drowsy. 
You can't not sneak by His judgment. And if you think, well, He's pouring out His judgment heavy over there on those people who deserve it. His judgment's heavy over there. Maybe He's distracted. This is, I'll get by. Because they deserve judgment. Judgment falls over there. I'm just a single person. I can get by. If you think because He swallowed kingdoms whole, wicked, ruthless, vile kingdoms, that you will somehow escape His wrath. It's just you. And what are you? Know that only the blood of Christ can placate, can satisfy, can appease the wrath of the righteous and holy God against your sin. Zedekiah was offered safety should he surrender. But he chose cunning over the obedience of faith. Derek Kidner comments, Zedekiah who has not dared to let God save him and his city and his family, now deserts the people he has doomed. And therein he becomes the supreme example, Kidner writes, of the Lord's paradox that safety is a fatal goal to live for. Jesus said whoever would lose his life, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, We'll find it. Well, after being overtaken, the king is brought to Nebuchadnezzar at Riblah, verse 5. Running from the officials proves to be nothing but an exhausting way of getting before the king. Running away from God, that's what your sin is. It's denial and an attempt to run from the one who is everywhere present. Running away from God will prove to be nothing but an exhausting way of coming before the throne of God's judgment with more stains and a heavier burden of guilt. Ribla is north of Galilee. In, uh, it's on the Orontes River, which begins in in Lebanon and oddly flows north and about midway on that river you find Ribla and it's just this critical um, strategic place to launch a military incursion in that area. And so he's brought to the king, to Nebuchadnezzar there, and the eye-to-eye meeting that he was promised in 34.3 comes to pass. And you need to realize this isn't the first face-to-face meeting that Zedekiah's had with Nebuchadnezzar. It was Nebuchadnezzar who set Zedekiah on the throne, and Zedekiah assumed that position as a vassal, as a servant, swearing covenant loyalty to Nebuchadnezzar in Yahweh's name. And so uh, it's, it's not that you just have a conquering king advancing and he's taken over a king. He's exacting vengeance against a rebellious servant, Nebuchadnezzar is. Zedekiah is not only coming before Nebuchadnezzar then as a covenant traitor, but in doing so, he's coming before Yahweh's throne of judgment as a covenant breaker. Ezekiel makes this clear, Ezekiel 17, 13 through 19. He took one, he being uh, Nebuchadnezzar, he took one of the royal offspring, Zedekiah, 
he took one of the royal offspring and made a covenant with him, putting him under oath, the chief men of the land he had taken away. He made this covenant that the kingdom might be humble and not lift itself up and keep his covenant, that it might stand. But he rebelled against him by sending his ambassadors to Egypt that they might give him horses and a large army. Will he thrive? Can one escape who does such things? Can he break the covenant and yet escape? As I live, declares Yahweh, the Lord Yahweh. Now, Yahweh is taking a binding covenant oath. You've broken the one you made in my name, and Yahweh is saying, now I swear. Surely, in the place where the king dwells, who made him king, whose oath he despised and whose covenant with him he broke, in Babylon he shall die. Pharaoh with his mighty army and great company will not help him in war. When, he, when mounds are cast up and siege walls built to cut off many lives, he despised the oath in breaking the covenant, and behold, he gave his hand and did all these things. He shall not escape. Therefore, thus says the Lord Yahweh, as I live, surely it is my oath that he despised, and my covenant that he broke. I will return it upon his head. And so, when you read the severity of the sentence that falls on Zedekiah. In, in one sense, this just shocks our modern sensibilities. And yet, what's happening is a measure of mercy, not only from Zedekiah, but from Yahweh here, even in this. And yet, I hope you get some sense of what it means to fall into the hands of the living God who is a consuming fire. Zedekiah's sons are slaughtered before his eyes. The nobles, no doubt including many of the officials who have sought Jeremiah's death, are then slain. And then Zedekiah's eyes are plucked out. So this will be the last and most vivid image remaining in Jeremiah's blind, dark mind until he dies in Babylon. You remember Samson faced a similar punishment. His eyes plucked out. But his death had a mark of glory and vengeance. Zedekiah is promised a measure of grace from God. You will die in peace. You'll be lamented by your people. But there's no glory in his death. This fulfills that mysterious word in Ezekiel 12.13 where he said, you'll be taken to Babylon and you'll die there, but you won't see it. As for the city, the people, the fullness of promised judgment, 
now comes upon them in verses 8 through 10. The king's house, the people's houses, the temple are burned with fire. And if you'll take some time to read chapter 52, that's the fullest historical account of the events that unfold here. If you'll take some time to read it, you'll see that Nebuzaradan, who's mentioned in the next verse, was in charge of all this destruction as well. This happens about one month after the city has been taken and is occupied and under Babylonian rule. This official wasn't part of that first group, but he now comes to dominate. His name means Nebo has given seed, but his title is what's most disturbing here. You have captain of the guard, and in the sense of the words could be he's the captain of the imperial guard. That could be the idea. But if you just strictly translate them, and this is a possible meaning, if you just strictly trace, uh, uh, translate them, he could be the chief butcherer, which is to be understood then uh, the sense chief executioner. When Nebuzaradan comes to town, temples, the temple is burned, the walls are leveled, burned, the houses burned, destroyed. And he carries with him though, to Babylon those who have deserted and those who remain in the city. And some of the poorest of the land then remain and he gives them fields and vineyards. And this is just wise strategy on Babylon's part because they'll be receiving tribute from these things and now the poor will be endeared to them. But from God's hand, this is an act of justice. The poor who the officials and the kings have so long oppressed receive righteous compensation. The poor who, you remember, Zedekiah led the nobles of Judah in making a covenant that they should be freed, the ones who had been enslaved, and then they forced them back into slavery. Now, God liberates. Now, reflecting on, on what we've covered so far, saints, Ephesians 2.3 tells us that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The boiling pot of God's righteous and holy judgment against sin hung precariously over all of our heads. It's, it's like that, that bowl or that glass that when you tip it, you, you know it's hit that point where, where it's going over. And it's, it's slowly moving, but it's certain. That is the way judgment hangs over our heads. Our only salvation is not that the pot set upright by anything we've done. It wasn't that even the, this precariously tilted pot was set upright by God's mercy. No, our only salvation is that the pot tipped, but there was one who stood in our place and bore God's holy fire against our souls in our place. No cunning, no power can escape God's judgment against sin. All sin 
every sin is judged and plunged beneath the boiling waters of God's wrath. There is no escape. The only reason that there are any in heaven is not because their their sins are just swept aside and ignored. The only reason is because their sins were judged on another. Don't fool yourself that you can escape God's judgment. There's not one soul in heaven, not the best soul in heaven, that escaped it by anything of themselves. Don't fool yourself that you can live it up now and get serious about this later. Don't think you can party now and somehow you'll eke by when test day comes. It is foolish for a child to play with fire. How much more for we little creatures to defy the Creator who is a consuming fire. The most vivid image from Edward's famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Again, shocks our modern sensibilities, but it is an accurate representation of the reality we all live under. However unconvinced you may now be of the truth of what you hear, by and by you will be fully convinced of it. Those that are gone from being in the like circumstances with you, see that it was so with them. For destruction came suddenly upon most of them when they expected nothing of it. And while they were saying peace and safety, now they see that those things on which they depended for peace and safety were nothing but air and empty shadows. Your Egypt will fail you. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in His sight. You are ten thousand times more abominable in His eyes than the most hateful venomous serpent is in yours. You have offended Him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did His prince, and yet it is nothing but His hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. Sinner, the pot hangs precariously over your head. You, you... Survive your days on this earth by a thin thread of His mercy. Held by His hand of long-suffering and patience. And nothing else separates you from the eternal fate of which you deserve nothing else. Don't try the line. Don't plot your own means of escape. 
Heed the word of God and surrender to the King. He is exalted, Jesus Christ. Bow before Him in repentance and faith. Don't ignore this unseen but ultimate reality. It's there. It's true. Repent and believe in the Christ crucified for sinners. In contrast to Zedekiah who speaks face to face with Nebuchadnezzar, we have Nebuchadnezzar relating to Jeremiah through Nebuzaradan. And it's significant that he relates through his officials to Jeremiah. Whereas Zedekiah, king of Judah, fearful of his officials, let them almost kill him. And then confines him to the court of the guard so he can try to play both sides, find out information from Jeremiah and yet keep him from speaking to the people. Whereas that's how Zedekiah related to Jeremiah. Nebuchadnezzar commands his officials to release him and free him from the court of the guard that they had confined him to. He's delivered over to Gedaliah. We'll learn later Gedaliah will become gov- is the appointed governor now. And what it is that Jeremiah asks of Nebuzaradan is made plain in this. He remains with the people. He lives among the people. So Jeremiah isn't the pro-Babylonian traitor that he's been painted as by the officials. He's pro-Yahweh, and then and thus, he's pro-Yahweh's people. He has, for 40 years, in faithfulness and zeal and love to God, declared Yahweh's word, and loved this people who have done nothing but persecute, reject, and ignore him. And now, whenever he finally has his "Uh uh-huh moment, You don't sense any vengeance. You don't sense an opportunist. You don't sense him trying to use this for his advantage. Now that he's vindicated, no self-interest, no revenge, he continues to live among the people. And though Jeremiah provides quite a contrast with Zedekiah in this, Zedekiah who fleed seeking his own safety. Jeremiah who stayed for the welfare of the people. Though Jeremiah provides quite a contrast here. It's not the chief one this text I think is clearly wanting us to see. Nebuchadnezzar even provides quite a contrast here with Zedekiah. You know you're bad when the pagan king named after the pagan god comes out looking better than you do. But that's not the main contrast. The main contrast in this portion is not between prophet and king, not even between king and king, but between king and servant. That this is so, I believe is clear by this. We have this flashback to a prophecy given to Ebed-Melech whenever the siege was still being waged against the city. 
Remember, this latter portion of Jeremiah, which reads different from the rest of the book, it, it clearly was set apart as its own section at one point. It's, it's not only historical prose, but it is chronological, which none of the book has been. And in this chronological section of Jeremiah, we have a flashback now. It makes it stick out so much so, so that a lot of scholars say, Uh, Someone messed up here whenever they're putting everything together. I think the point is simply to draw out the richest contrast that God intends at this point. Jeremiah has prophetically addressed individuals a number of times throughout this book. Mostly kings. It did seem addressed the false prophet Hananiah. But there are only two instances that I can recall where Jeremiah speaks to an individual with a word from Yahweh to an individual. Only two times that he does so where that word is favorable. One being to Barak. We'll come across that one shortly. Chapter 45. And the other right here to Ebed-Melech. And as the word to Barak has also a word of rebuke in it, this then is the most favorable, I believe, word from Yahweh through Jeremiah to an individual in this book. The most favorable word from Yahweh in this book to an individual other than Jeremiah, the most favorable word that Jeremiah delivers delivers, aimed at an individual is an Ethiopian or a Cushite eunuch. It's a favorable word. He says, though the city will be destroyed, as I've spoken, you'll be saved, you'll be delivered. And he tells him not to be afraid. There's no reason to be afraid of these, these men. Shall not be given into their hand. Who are these men? Some say they're the Chaldeans. I think that's. Uh, I don't think that's really who Ebed Melech was afraid of. As the city comes to these critical hours, I think Ebed Melech was afraid that those men that he had perturbed in delivering the prophet that they wanted to kill will say, "What's holding us back now from murdering the kings?" servant. The Cushite king, uh, the Cushite servant of the king will be saved, his life given to him as a prize of war, the spoils of war. And then most important, the final word of this portion of Scripture is the reason that Yahweh gives for why Ebed-Melech will be delivered. What are the grounds? Verse 18, I will surely save you. You shall not fall by the sword. But you shall have your life as a prize of war because you have put your trust in me, declares Yahweh. Ebed-Melech was saved for faith and faith alone. Habakkuk was a contemporary of Jeremiah. And he saw the violence and oppression that were in Judah 
while it still stood. And he cried out to God and lamented it. And God's answer was, Chaldeans. To which Habakkuk responded with greater lament. And God then spoke to Habakkuk and said, Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Derek Kidner writes, as a postscript to the oracle for Ebed-Melech, we can notice it says nothing of the heroism, the compassion, or the resourcefulness of his rescue operation, outstanding though these were. Only of the faith in God that was the mainspring of them all. What distinguishes this Gentile from all the other Judeans who are mentioned in this text, what distinguishes him is this. He trusts Yahweh. What will separate the sheep and the goats on the day of judgment, though they will be distinguished by their works, the grounds of their separation is not their works. That's simply the manifestation of where they go. But the grounds upon which these are sheep, these are goats, that the sheep hear the shepherd's voice. And they trust. And they follow. Psalm 27, 20 and verse 7 says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of Yahweh our God. Through the prophet Isaiah, God gave a word that was too quickly forgotten. Saying, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses. Who trust in chariots because there are many. And in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult Yahweh. While Zedekiah looked to Egypt's horses. This Ethiopian looked to Israel's God. Was not Ebed-Melech's trust itself, mind you, that saved him? It was the God in whom he trusted. Trust in nothing else but the Word of God. That there is salvation in no other name than that of Christ crucified for sinners. Risen, sitting on His throne from whence all men will be judged. You may not, like Zedekiah, 
be trusting in your cunning wickedness, but your good works. Your good works are not good enough. Your good works are just as much an expression of self-reliance as Zedekiah's cunning and running. And that that so can be seen in this. Paul quotes Habakkuk 2.4, The righteous shall live by faith, to demonstrate just this. All who, Galatians 3, All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. The Ebed Milex. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Faith is the empty hand that God fills with Christ. And in having Christ, we have all. Judgment is promised. Judgment is certain. God has spoken. It will happen. Your sins will be judged. Your only hope is to cling to one who bore that judgment in your place. And so there is surprisingly a word of grace in the midst of this judgment. And the word of grace is a word of judgment. But the grace is that the judgment fell upon another. And if you would cling to him, it will not fall upon you. So know that it's better to come with the empty hands of faith, having nothing like a servant, like Ebed-Melech, clinging to God's promise in Christ, than to be a king, possessing all, and relying and trusting in your own cunning and wisdom. Don't. Run. Bow. In faith. Before the Son. And you will be saved. Let's pray. Father. We would lament and cry out as Jeremiah did for his kindred. As we look around, we would plead that there's one here who the pot of your wrath still hangs over their head. That you would grant them faith. Christ 
treasuring faith, you would save their souls. Father, with the joy of the Lord as our strength and a burden for this world, I pray we would we would have this kind of sobering lens through which we look at this world. Understanding its fate when they do not. And that in the midst, in faithfulness to you and love to others, we would stay. We would be faithful. Father, however meager, however fruitful, we would long to see in the midst of certain judgment, many, we would not have, <laughs> we would not have suspected. Your grace is always surprising. We would see many Ebed Meleks turn in faith to you. In Christ's name we ask this. Amen.